I would like to introduce our speaker this morning, a delightful, passionate, and enthusiastic woman with a wide array of interests. Her passions include traveling, lifelong learning, reading, and inspiring others to live their passions. She actively leads a vibrant teen group here at the center, facilitates adult learning, travels as much as possible, and has hiked Mount Kilimanjaro. After 16 years of operations management, she recently left the corporate business world to live her own inspired life. Please welcome Reverend Catherine Cardinal. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday morning celebration here at the Centre. And weren't we proud Canadians on Friday night with that beautiful opening ceremony at the Olympics? Weren't they just fabulous? Go, Canada, go. And may peace prevail on earth throughout this Olympics and always. As well as the day of love, so we will uh, bring that love into our hearts when we do our opening treatment. But before I do that, I would like to bring up some very special people. These are our new practitioner interns. I'm going to invite you all to come forward, those of you that are here. This group of people have been studying with Reverend Patrick and I for the last year and couple of months. And they're just moving out of the 300 program and now moving into the 350, which is the internship, where they really get to start putting into practice all of this theory that we've been doing for the last year. Science of Mind 300 is learning about the art and science of affirmative prayer. And I'd like to introduce these wonderful new students. And we're missing two because we have eight in class. But we have Linda Wolf, Barb Gobert, Julie Bull, Murray Gibbs, Carmian Owen, Gary Buckingham. Please acknowledge the wonderful journey these people are on. We are an educational center, and our teaching is put into practice with all of our classes, but very much so in the practitioner training. As well, these practitioner interns are now in their internship, which means that they are looking for clients, but they can't come and ask you, hey, can I do treatment work for you? Because that's not how it works with, the, with our code of ethics. So if there is something you would like treatment for, any of these people are ready and willing and able to provide that practitioner work for you. And one little secret about interns, they don't yet charge their professional fee because they're interns and they're practicing. However, I can tell you with absolute certainty and confidence that each one of these people here have absolutely clear consciousness, and if you want a dynamic opportunity with a practitioner, call one of our new interns. Their numbers will be on the program starting in March. So please acknowledge these wonderful people again. Thank you all. So on this day of love, Valentine's Day, let's open our hearts to the love that is within us as we center and ground ourselves in our opening affirmative prayer treatment. So knowing that this presence is all there is. It is the loving presence that is in, as, and through me. There is only love. There is only one life. There is only power and presence. It is my life now. So I relax into it, allowing it to guide and direct me in each and everything that I express in my life. So I express more love. I express more peace and ease and harmony. 
and I open myself up to expressing a bigger idea of who and what I am. I say yes to the dreams that are within me, that are expressing themselves. I say yes to the bigger idea and taking the bigger leap and taking the action in my experience to be fully present to my authentic self. And I give and share this love, this unconditional love freely, openly, allowing myself to receive the blessings of being present in love in each and every moment. So I'm in great gratitude, great gratitude for all of the blessings in my life, all the people and resources and the opportunities that come through me that I say yes to. So I know it is already done in the mind of the one. So I release it with ease and grace. And together I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Thanks, Brown. I'd like to share a story that appeared on the International Newswire, the Associated Press, in 1995. Islamabad, Pakistan. When Iqbal Masih was four years old, his parents sold him into slavery for less than $16. For the next six years, he remained shackled to a carpet-weaving loom most of the time, tying tiny knots hour after hour. By the age of 12, he was free in traveling the world in his crusade against the horrors of child labor. On Sunday, Iqbal was shot dead while he and two friends were riding their bikes in their village of Merdiki, 35 kilometers outside the eastern city of Lahore. Some believe his murder was carried out by angry members of the carpet industry who had made repeated threats to silence the young activist. A young 12-year-old named Craig read that story in the newspaper that one morning in 1995, and it caused him concern, and he started asking himself many questions. Who would do this? Why would someone sell their child to slavery? How can I help? This question was the big one for him and led him on a search. He found all sorts of articles about other types of atrocities that happen in countries where poverty is the norm, especially extreme poverty. One day, as he continued to be sharing these stories within his mind, he asked to speak to his class. And as part of sharing this story with his 12-year-old classmates, he asked the question, could anyone volunteer to help me make a difference with this issue? Eleven hands shot up, and a new charity entitled Free the Children was born with a group of 12 12-year-olds. Around the same time, An 18-year-old named Mark was a page at the House of Commons in Ottawa. He had a dream job being one of those pages that go around and serve water to the MPs and deliver all those top-secret messages that keep our country moving and flowing, or at least so they tell us. Dressed in his self-proclaimed penguin suit, for him... Starting out on his career of political science, this was a perfect job and was the perfect stepping stone for him to become a speechwriter, something that was his dream. 
One day, in serving the water and delivering one of the notes, one of the MPs asked him, what kind of legacy do you want to leave, son? Mark kind of thought, you know, pour water, kind of joking, but the man was persistent and serious in his question. He shared a story of a charity that he was involved with that helped out in the poverty-stricken areas of Thailand, in the suburbs of Bangkok. Mark said, no, thank you. I'm on my path. Yet this MP was persistent. And the next day, asked him over again and asked again, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Again, interestingly enough, in the same year, in 1995, young Australian Hugh Evans was also 12 years old. He had seen a World Vision presentation of some of the places in the world where extreme hunger and extreme poverty was such an issue. He participated in something called the 40-hour famine that raised money for this issue. And he became so inspired and ignited that he got many of his schoolmates, and that school raised the most money for World Vision of anyone in the world that particular year. He was on a quest because he had something ignited within him. Let me go back to Craig, the 12-year-old. He wanted to visit Asia. He didn't feel he had enough credibility speaking about this problem of poverty and child labor without actually seeing it for himself. He'd been begging his parents for months to be able to go. Finally, an opportunity presented itself, and his mentor, a young man, 24-year-old human rights activist by the name of Aleem, was going to South Asia to visit relatives. Craig said, my parents didn't know what hit them. And he pestered and pestered and pestered them to be able to go. Now, can you imagine if your 12-year-old or 13-year-old came to you and said, I want to go to Southeast Asia to check out the poverty so I can talk more knowledgeably about my charity? What would you think? His parents finally relented when he was able to assuage his parents' fears his mom had said, convince me you will be safe. So he went to India and saw some of the issues there firsthand and met people that had been released from child labor. Around the same time, interestingly enough, our prime minister at the time was also visiting Asia. Free the Children and Craig had been trying to get his attention, to draw some attention to these issues while he was on this particular trade mission. And to date, he hadn't done anything about it. He'd been making some trade deals, but there was no word, no word of child labor. So what does a 13-year-old young man do when he wants to get his message out? He called a press conference. All of Canada's largest TV and media outlets were there. And he was there with one of his new friends, somebody that had been released and who spoke of his terror and torture when he had been held captive. That story ran not only on the Canadian newswires, but also on CNN. The next day, the Prime Minister's handlers were looking for Mark, I'm sorry, looking for Craig and trying to get a hold of him to have a conversation. Craig had the opportunity to speak to the Prime Minister and ask him to highlight some of these issues of child labor while he was talking to these different companies about their trade mission. He learned then 
that a young man with a vision could make a difference. Back to Mark, the 18-year-old. He's now 19, and he's succumbed to the pressure of the MP, and he's off on his trip to Bangkok, Thailand. He's promised his parents that he will come back and go to school and continue his education. So he's put it on hold just for a little bit, thinking, I'll go for a summer trip, I'll do some good in the world, and he's off to Bangkok. So he is going to go and work in a medical clinic. He lands in Bangkok, and he drives through in the taxi through a fairly affluent part of Bangkok, and he's thinking, I'm coming here to help someone with poverty? Hmm, this is interesting. However, the taxi continued to drive, and they got to one of the suburbs. And the suburb was a very, very poor area. Row upon row of corrugated tin huts and a very, very dense population. And they dropped, the taxi dropped him off at this clinic. The two nurses there were very excited to see him. Mark, we're so glad you've come to help us. We're glad. You're a doctor, right? Mark's like, no, I'm in political science. But you've had some medical training. Well, I've had some first aid. Well, we'll train you. The next four hours were an intense training for Mark as he learned how to bandage and how to give medication and how to give needles. Four hours of training. After that, the nurses, after the four hours, the nurses said to him, Mark, there's something else. We haven't had a day off in 30 days. And we're going to leave you here for the next shift. Mark was appalled and scared, but there was no changing their minds. Those nurses wanted their time off. They needed a break. So they showed him the various parts of this clinic. Just behind the screen over here was another part of the clinic called the exit ward. And in the exit ward, there were people that were suffering from HIV and AIDS in the advanced stages. And so when they exited, they really did exit this planet. Mark took a deep breath, because that's all he had the option to do in that moment. And he started to do what he could with these patients. And he decided to fall back on his training and his experience. So he started by offering people water and making his patients comfortable. That seemed to be going okay as he was telling stories and kind of getting to know some of the patients until someone in the exit ward started to choke and aspirate. He was quite concerned, and he did everything he could to help make this patient better and at least alleviate their suffering. However, in the exit ward, usually what happens is that the patient pass away, and this patient did die. The nurses came back after the end of the, the, their break, or the end of the shift, and he said, this is it, I cannot do this. I did not sign up for this, and I'm done. I quit. He went back to, to collect his belongings in the apartment where he was staying and phone his parents and admit defeat, which was a bit hard for this young 19-year-old. They arranged a ticket for him, and while he was getting ready to go, a young boy came to the door and asked him, where are you going? This young boy was about 12, the same age of his brother at home, Lots of joy in his face. He said, you can't go, Mark. You need to stay for my birthday party. 
So Mark's like, okay, well, when will that be? And it was in a couple of days. So he stayed for the birthday party. Now, this young boy was part of the group of children called the street kids, kids that are orphans and band together and live together and do what they can to make as much money as they possibly can living in this extreme poverty community. In addition, he also recognized from his volunteer orientation that the fact that this 12-year-old boy spoke English as well as he did probably meant that one of his jobs was in the sex trade, servicing uh, tourists that came to Bangkok. So he felt a lot of compassion for this young boy. And he went to the birthday party. The birthday party turns out with all of these street kids come together. Because they're orphans, many of them don't know really when their birthday is. They don't have any parents. And they come together and once a year they celebrate who and what they are. And they save money from their meager earnings to be able to have this celebration of watermelon and peanuts. And he was just in such awe that this group of young boys could be in such joy when they had so little. And he then decided that he needed to stay and make a difference. He recognized that through the luck of his birthplace, he was so much more fortunate, and the least he could do was do something to improve the situation for these young people in Thailand. Moving forward to Hugh, the young Australian, After he had raised all of that money, he had won a trip through that uh, presentation, through the World Vision Group. And when he was 14 years old, he went to the Philippines. And he met a boy who was his host while he was there, who lived in the slum built on the top of a garbage dump. That, in that moment, Hugh decided, I'm going to make a difference. Again, through the luck of my birthplace, I live in Australia with a decent standard of living, and here I am sleeping on the floor of this house where the, the smell, as you might imagine, is very strong living on top of a garbage hump, this dark garbage dump. This whole community was there. And yet he recognized a light and an inspiration in Sonny Boy and his family, but he vowed then to make a difference with extreme poverty. When he was 15 years old, He went to his parents and said, Mom, I want to go and work with Mother Teresa for a year. Now, can you imagine your child at 15 coming and saying, I want to go live in India with Mother Teresa for a year? His parents weren't too sure about that either. But they decided, once they found out he would be safe, that it would be a great experience. And based on those experiences, he went forward and created the Oak Tree Foundation at 15 or 16 years old. These are inspiring stories of young people that decide to make a difference because they had a dream. Additionally, Hugh, and I heard him speak when I was in Australia, and he was one of the most inspirational young men that I heard. He's probably about 25 now, and I think he's actually moving on to a new project because his Oak Tree Foundation is run and governed by all young people. And I think he's actually aged himself out of his own job. When he was in his late teens, the Oak Tree Foundation put on the Make Poverty History. It was the biggest concert that Australia had ever seen, put on by a group of older teenagers. 
They wanted to do this concert and bring bands together to come together and highlight the issues of extreme poverty in less fortunate countries and to get their government to commit to the one campaign, which is committing 1% of their GDP towards eradicating extreme poverty. Because the reason that we want to get rid of the extreme poverty is so that we don't have parents that are selling their children into slavery when often they're not thinking they're sl- selling their children but they're being told that they, they're being offered a better life for their children. They're being told things fraudulently about food and education. And so people, parents, want a better life for their children and are kind of uh, succumbed to this way of thinking. So Hugh wanted to make a difference. He ended up signing 100,000 people online all over the world to watch this concert. It was the biggest concert ever, streamed all over Australia, U2's Bono heard about the project and called Hugh and said, hey, I want to come. You need to keep it a secret. Hugh said, yeah, 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 sure. And it was the worst kept secret in all of Australia's history. They had over 100,000 people pay attention and sign online to, to commit to this 1%. And the Prime Minister at the time said to him after the concert was over, yes, you may have had 100,000 people, but they aren't the right people. So Hugh thought, hmm, okay, and took his band of people. And these young people crisscrossed all of Australia, knocking on doors and getting to a secondary concert that was held in Sydney at the Opera House and outside the Opera House to bring highlighting and highlighting this issue throughout all of Australia. And the leader of the opposition at the time came to that concert and said, if I am elected, I will commit this 1%. Never doubt what a small group of committed people, especially young people with optimism, can do. That leader of the opposition then became the Prime Minister of Australia. And Hugh continues this day to work on making poverty history and is now doing it through film and it was launched in Toronto a few months ago, um, his film about making poverty history. Three young boys, all with stories, and a dream. Now I'd like to tell you about a young lady. Her name is Tanya. I heard her speak in Australia as well. And she was one of the new leaders of the Australian chapter of the Paris Centre for Peace. And this organization promotes peace through sports in the Middle East, through Israel and Palestine, bringing children from both sides of that conflict together to play sports together and get to know each other and promote peace thinking that if kids play together, then we have, a, we have bonds and we have friends. And she had this idea about taking Australian football to that sports program. She wanted that to be her contribution or one of her contributions. And she had the idea because her young son, who was a young Jewish boy in Australia and had lived a very sheltered life within his community, had wanted to play Australian football, also known as footy. And so he went to play with Footy, and he was the only Jewish young boy on this team. And she saw how it opened up the ideas of communication and how the friendships that were born created understanding and thought, if this can happen here, let's take this to the program with the the Paris Centre for Peace, and let's take Australian football to the Middle East. Well, that small idea became a much bigger idea And she was speaking with the Australian Football League's uh, crew 
and they suggested you need to talk to this guy and he said well we're doing the world cup or whatever it's called in football i can't remember we're doing the world footy thing <laughs> so here in australia next year why don't you put together a peace team so in this in this tournament 16 countries come together and play australian rules football footy and this idea inspired her and so within a year you can imagine the obstacles the funding how to even find players in israel or palestine that even know what footy is let alone know how to play it equipment but she was a woman with a mission and she talked to anybody who would listen and she got her funding and they started the process a year later that team the peace team with 16 players from palestine and 16 players from israel came to australia and were the dream team they'd won the hearts and minds of the australian people this started with a dream of tanya it wasn't without challenge it takes a lot to get palestinian kids through the checkpoints they played when they first came together they came and they played on a kibbutz with no goal posts no gear and i don't know if you've ever seen australian football but it is a rough game it's kind of like rugby and soccer and football all tied into one and rougher it's kind of um looks a little bit celtic and barbaric in my mind but they seem to love it so these kids came and their their first practices you might imagine as we often do when we're meeting people for the first time half the kids were on one side the israeli kids and the palestinian kids were on the other side they kind of stayed separate they wondered why they were there and they had been told all of their life that the others were the enemy some people some of them that went were told that they would be in danger if they played on this team a young israeli boy he was the youngest person on the team his name was yonatan he had never met a palestinian kamel had been was a teacher in the west bank and he was a phys ed teacher and loved sports and he was open to the challenge and these boys came together and had 25 hours of practice time together before they hit australia and went to this tournament and they bonded and they connected and they made friends and they increased understanding of each other and they understood that each side wanted the same thing and that was safe and security for themselves and their families i have a video that is from the center paris the paris center for peace that highlights this program and shows how sports can bring peace in the world and i'd like to share it with you now Feet 
our heroes We try hard to learn But the lesson is lost there In the smoke and the mud That we are one flesh, one breath, one life, one blood I stood by the river
No matter if you're black or white, you're Muslim, Christian or Buddhist or Jewish, no matter if you're men and women, here is a world where you compete without hating, where you win without killing. Sport is a great educator for peace. If you should learn in politics what we have learned in sport, then the politics will look better and the sport will be able to spread wider. Isn't that what the Olympics is about? Spreading peace through sport. So what do Craig and Mark and Hugh and Tanya have in common? Well, Craig and Mark were actually brothers. They all had a dream. It started with an idea. They didn't know what it completely looked like, but they knew that they wanted to make a difference. And they had an idea and a spark of inspiration. And they took inspired action, one step at a time. Tanya says, never give up on a dream. Look at what a little idea can become, such a big idea. Each one of these people created something magnificent. And that's because they had the magnificence within them. And that's the same for each one of us. I invite you to allow your magnificence to come forward, to be expressed, and to take the big leap for whatever that idea is for you. Because that is what our spiritual path is all about, to have the courage to let it out and be expressed and be our authentic self. Allow your dream to soar, for that is who you are. Namaste. Namaste.